This is KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. We also stream live at kzyx.org. This is Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. Right now we're broadcasting live from the Carnegie Library Studio in Willits, California, and up next we've got the Farm and Garden Show. Support for KZYX comes from our members and Ivy Accounting and Payroll Services in Willits, specializing in bookkeeping and payroll services for local agriculture businesses and more. Serving all of Mendocino County, more information at ivyaccounting.com or 489-5486. We're going to get started here with um, some announcements about the August Complex fire. Uh, there were new evacuations, evacuation orders that were issued on Sunday for the north and east of Round Valley areas. Um, Zone N is now under evacuation order. Um, that's north of the Middle Fork of the Eel River, including the Eel River Ranger Station and Black Butte Store, west and south of the National Forest Boundary, east of Williams Creek. The following road closures are FH7, Mendocino Pass Road, and M1, Indian Dick Road, at the Eel River. Also Highway 162 at Short Creek. And all previous evacuation orders and warnings remain in effect. For a detailed online map of all the current evacuation orders and warnings in Mendocino County, visit www.tinyurl.com slash mendoevac. Covalo High School is still open for evacuees, and the Round Valley Rodeo Grounds is open for small and large animals, including livestock. For questions about fire evacuations, you can call the Mendocino County Call Center at 707 234 6052. And like I said, up next we've got the Farm and Garden Show, and this is your host, Ruthie King, with uh, Darcy out in Covalo. Let's bring Darcy up. Are you there? Hi. All right. So um, this is going to be a little bit of a different kind of show for you guys this month because it's a different kind of world that we're living in right now. And um, it's been a pretty wild month since we last talked to you on the air. So, um, Last month, we put together a show on indigenous fire practices, and it was a really interesting show. You can still find it on the jukebox, I believe, on kzyx.org. And we found it to be a really important, pertinent topic. You know, we were already um, dealing with the consequences of the August Complex fire, and um, Darcy was talking about the smoke there. And and so um, that was a month ago, and that was September 7th. Uh, and since then, um, a lot has happened. So at the very end of that show, we sort of made our plan for the next show. And Darcy, you want to talk about what we had planned for this month? Yeah, we were planning to focus on how farmers were affected by the smoke and by the ash and evacuation orders and the fire itself. Um, and so we had like a little like meeting at the end of like, okay, I'm going to do this and you'll do that yeah. and we'll come together. And yeah, um, we were going to interview the farmer's market manager, how sales and how the market has decreased and how the crops, maybe the wine crop is being either rejected or taken in for, from vineyards. And um, that's going to be a really great show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so then I left the studio here in Willits, and I and I head back home to my sheep. I raise I raise sheep and pigs at, at Ridgewood Ranch, and um, I'm also a member of the volunteer fire department with Ridgewood Ranch Fire. And so, it was 
two hours and 17 minutes after I got back home that my pager went beep, 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 Ridgewood Ranch Fire, um, and a whole long list of other um, departments that were being called to the Oak incident. Um, so, so the Oak incident started two hours after our last show about fire, and um, yeah. and that sort of kicked off uh, uh, a, a whole chain of events. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. The, the both of our experiences with the um, with all of the fires that are happening in our region, um, and recognizing that you know, we're your hosts for the Farm and Garden Show, and we're also farmers and gardeners and ranchers. And um, there was a moment a few days ago where I'm talking to our program director and saying, you know, I'm really sorry. It was a crazy month. I've been fighting fires for three weeks, and Darcy's been under evacuation warning, and we're just, we we didn't get it together. And, and, you know, maybe no show this month. And it was pointed out to us, like, uh... Aren't you guys farmers who were impacted by the fire? <laughs> Couldn't you just talk about your experience? So, so yeah, that's what we're going to do today. And, um, yeah, it's a little different. Usually you get to hear us asking the questions of our guests or playing clips and, and bringing information to you from the outside. And um, today you're going to get to hear our first-person perspective. Yeah, the inside scoop. The inside scoop. Which, of course, is like an ongoing thing, and we could probably just do this every month. But we're going to try it out this month and see how it goes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so go ahead. While you, while you were on the Oak Incident fire, I had driven down to Ukiah, and there wasn't a fire at that point. And then as I was driving back up, I see the fire alongside the road, and I immediately am like, about the and it's going to be a very long interesting month <laughs> yeah so yeah that was the starting point of the craziness the wildness yeah, uh, yeah. so what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of do a timeline of the past month and, and go back and forth and talk about our experiences and so you'll be hearing about uh my experience with with working on both the oak and the august <laughs> fires and trying to get my animals cared for back at home. And we'll be hearing about Darcy's experience with literally farming right underneath the smoke column of um, the August Complex fire, um, which I'm, I'm looking at right now is currently sitting at 1,002,097 acres. So the fire has now broken a million acres, um, which is pretty wild. Um, so I think I'll just kick it off and give my account of what the initial attack was like for me on the oak incident and i just want to let all of our listeners know that this um this show i'm going to be talking about the experience that i had from the perspective of fighting the fire and if that is triggering it all for you um it might be a good moment to um to change the channel or to um have a seat and take some deep breaths and think about whether this is something you want to hear. And um, so just be good to yourself and and recognize that we're all still in fire season and and it's all very present. This is very recent. So um, that's my, that's my little disclaimer. We're going to be talking about the Oak incident and the August complex. So um, do what's right for you. Okay. So beep, 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 Richard Ridge fire. That's that's me, and I'm part of a small volunteer fire department. There's six of us on the department. 
and we work with Little Lake Fire. We're um, we, we're mutual action or mutual aid with Little Lake and Brook Trails. So whenever there's a veg fire for either of those two departments, we respond as well. We cross train with Little Lake and Brook Trails um, monthly, and um, and we have our own um, small department at Ridgewood Ranch. And so we got toned out for a um, structure fire into the veg and. Um, and what that means, um, what that meant for us is we didn't re really know what we were heading to. It was 40 minutes away from where we live, so um, we took both of our engines and all of our, literally our entire fire department went, all um, all five of us at the time, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And um, when we drove out all the way past Third Gate um, to Big John Road, there was kind of a traffic jam up at the top there. There are a lot of engines trying to figure out, and this this I've heard is true of all kind of initial attack, is it's like a little bit chaotic to figure out what to, what to do to start. Um, but we arrived and we joined a hose lay with one of the CAL FIRE engines that was already there and starting to lay hose. And so progressive hose lay, what that looks like is we hop off the engine, we're wearing our Wildland um, Nomex, our, our fire resistant um, gear, and web gear, which contains our um, fire shelter in case of emergency and hose clamp and water and um, some hose. And we put on these hose packs. And the hose packs, for us, they carry 200-foot lengths of um, inch-and-a-half hose. And um, so we're pretty well geared up here. And it was, I think that day it was 100 degrees at, at, at around noon. It was a hot day. So we're all geared up. And we start traipsing down this hose lay to get to the nozzle. And a progressive hose lay is where all of us wearing a backpack full of hoses will take turns dropping a hose, unrolling it, and clamp the hose that has water coming out. So you clamp it, remove the nozzle, add another length of 100 feet of hose, put the nozzle back on, unclamp it. Now you're fully charged with water. And now you can progress another 100 feet. And you keep doing that. Um, following the flank of the fire, and um, I believe we laid something like 1,100 feet of hose, so 11 sticks of hose is what we did, going downhill, and um, and the fire was in pretty thick brush. Brook Trails, from what I've gathered, hasn't burned in a really long time, so this brush hasn't been cleared out. It was um, poison oak and manzanita and coyote brush, and just the whole time I was thinking about the show that we did like two hours earlier, about how low intensity fires really helped to clear out that understory. And um, right. it was really clear that the area we were in hadn't had any low intensity fires or really any fires in a long time. So poison oak burning right up next to us and um, just like so, so much dry fuel was just kind of exploding all around. We get to the bottom of the hose lay and at that moment we basically ran out of water. So the engines that were pumping water were out and we were getting support from other people who were arriving, other engines arriving on scene, but that was our moment where we ran out of water and had to re retreat into the black, it's called. So um, the safety zone that we had was the already burned grass area because it's not going to reburn. So we retreated into the into the black. Um, that's our safety zone. And we waited there um, until the fire intensity had gone down and we were able to return back to the engine. Um, so that whole thing, that whole initial attack, hose lay and um, and fire burning over the hose lay lasted about an hour and a half. 
And um, we were pretty much spent at that point. It was it's pretty exhausting work um, doing all that hiking with the hoses and unrolling. And, and um, so we were pretty spent, and we sat and um, cooled off for a moment. And as we're doing that, we're watching this incredible air show. So, like, planes, helicopters, so, so many resources in the air, dropping retardant, dropping water, mostly retardant, though. There's one, mm-hmm. the 747, you know, it's the big commercial, the big, the big, they call it the very large air tanker, the VLAT. The VLAT, two of them, I believe, were there dropping retardant. Um, and it was just an incredible sight to see. Um, there's a moment I, I've sort of recognized when it switches from a fire that can be fought on the ground by people with hoses and water, and it has to change into a fire that's fought from the air. Um, if it's just gotten, you know, it's gotten so big or it's gotten up into trees and it's gotten to a point where it can't be managed by human resources on the ground anymore and it turns into an air show. And um, so that was my first few hours on the Oak incident. Um, and yeah, it was pretty wild, pretty wild first day. And I didn't realize at that moment that it was going to lead into three weeks of firefighting. Um, uh, but Sure enough, that was just the first day of 18 days, um, 18 days of working all sorts of different fires. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what did that look like for you um, and all of your sheep that you had to take care of? Like, I know you have a support system at the ranch, but what does that like look like? And what, how do you prepare, prepare for that for being yeah. on so long? Yeah, I had I had a meeting. Um, I've had a few meetings beforehand. So the the whole summer we were sort of talking. We're always talking about what would what would happen if you know. And there's five of us in our farming collective, and we have um, a lot of support beyond that at the ranch. And so periodically we'll talk to each other about kind of the what if scenario. And mm-hmm. and it has to be a constant discussion. It can't just be for me at least. It can't just be make a plan and and that plan will always stay the same because my sheep are rotationally grazing around, you know, hundreds of acres. So if the, if the sheep are on one part of the property, there's one plan. If they're on the way, all the way on the other side, there's another plan. If, you know, different, all sorts of different things. So I have um, a wonderful woman, Lorraine, who works with me, who's been learning uh, the ropes of grazing sheep. And two weeks before the Oak incident, we had, uh, we had another kind of follow-up, meeting about what we're going to do if I get called out on a big fire. Um, Because I really, I I was, I was wanting to do that kind of service. I wanted to do a two week stint. Usually it's a 14 day assignment that you go on a fire and somewhere in the state, they'll call together Mm -hmm. a strike team in Mendocino. We'll put together five engines, send five engines out to a fire somewhere in the state. So I was already planning on that was on wanting to do that this season. Uh, I didn't realize it was going to be so close to home, but in some ways that was great, and in other ways it was harder. But um, yeah, so Lorraine and I talked, and and I gave her the option one, continue grazing with the grazing plan that we have, moving fence every day. You know, these are your four people that you can contact to get help. Um, If it starts to feel at all overwhelming, because she's a nurse who does COVID testing at the fairgrounds, she's got her own life also, you know. So I told her if it starts to get overwhelming, if you know there's no nothing wrong with putting them in a sacrifice paddock and feeding them hay every day that's like i would right. be totally fine with that as a backup plan and i think that was really helpful to her to know that she didn't have to be doing the grazing you know like if she 
If she wanted to, she could continue doing the grazing plan. If she felt like it was too much, she could just put them in this field and feed them hay. Right. But she is a rock star, and she decided she was going to go ahead and do it. And the grazing plan ended up being looping the backside of our ag pond, which is which was no easy feat. It's steep. There's hills. It's like there's no access roads. It's all hiking. And yeah. uh, a lot of it was sort of uncharted territory we'd never grazed before. And so she like she not only decided she was going to graze the sheep, continue grazing the sheep like we have been, but she was going to take on a big, really cool project. And um, and she did awesome at the end of it all. I think she felt really proud of it. And she w- she learned a lot about coordinating volunteer help on days when the sheep got out and things didn't go as planned. And right. so on that day, when I, when we got home that night, I think, or no, not that night, we slept on the fire line that night. We slept out in Brook Trails, um, monitoring the corner of the fire that we were on. Um, at 5 a.m. there was a slop over where it jumped the road and we, we put out the, we put it out and kept it, you know, our goal was to keep it on the, on the side of the road it was supposed to be on. And we finally got released to go home at 11 a.m. the next day. Um, and so when I got home, I talked to her, you know, recognizing now I'm going to be sent back out again the next day. So th- the way they do it is it's a 24-hour shift, and then you go home for 24 hours and go back for 24. So either yeah. either you go out for 12s or 24s. And, um, and so I was able to go back home and talk to her and get really lined up and figure out what's going to happen and... I didn't know it was going to be as long as it was. I thought maybe the oak incident, maybe we'll be there for three or four days. And then, you know, who knows? It really was at the beginning of that oak incident. It was really questionable how we were going to contain that fire. There are no, really no roads on the north side of it in between Brook Trails and Laytonville, practically. There's like really difficult to find any kind of containment line. Um, right. really steep and hilly terrain. So getting bulldozers in was kind of a challenge. And fortunately, they, you know, after they evacuated Brook Trails, 3,000 or so people evacuated and they were able to put in really good containment lines with a bulldozer to keep, um, if, you know, primary and secondary containment lines to keep the fire back from where the majority of the houses were. But um, it was question. It was, it was really not, we were not sure how that fire was going to go out. And, and miraculously, kind of, um, the what, what what are we calling it? The dark day. The dark day showed up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So so we'll get back to that. And I want to talk to you about what the dark day was like for you. So the dark day, I think, was on Wednesday that week, maybe Tuesday or Wednesday. Tuesday. I think Tuesday. I um, started the morning just like any other morning. Um, Got up, got dressed. I noticed it was darker than it should have been for that time of the morning. Um, and I came outside and we started working. And, you know, it was like like an amberish, like darkish color. And we're like, okay, well, we can still see so we can still work. And ash isn't coming down. And the air, it was remarkable. Like the layer of smoke was so high up in the atmosphere relative to how it has been and low on the ground where we were at it was so clear and the air was so clean and it was probably the cleanest it had been in i don't know like a week or two since the since the fires had started with all that lightning and um so 
you know, we played it by ear and it got to the point where we were like, okay, I guess let's get headlamps out. <laughs> it's really dark outside. Um, and it got darker. And right before it got to like pitch black, it went back to light and then went way dark. Um, and I think that day we were also in red flag warning. So the electricity for Round Valley was potentially going to be getting shut off. Mm-hmm. And so um, I decided we have a propane generator where I live. And so I decided to go get some more propane for backup in the case that we needed it. Um, and I went to go get propane. I went into town and everyone, there was there was a line of 40 cars. We have two gas stations in Covalo. There was a line of 40 cars on either side of one of the gas stations mm-hmm. and then about 20 on either side of the other gas station. And everyone, it was, everyone had their headlamps on because it was so dark out and it just looked like a busy beehive. People were just trying to get their gasoline for their generators or diesel or whatever it was and um, going to the grocery store to get food and supplies and candles and whatnot. Um, and so it was just really scary and chaotic and there i don't know if it was true at one point for a very short amount of time or it was just a rumor that had gone around that um the 162 which is the only paved road into and out of covalo um that that was closed off and to me that that's really alarming because if they're had been some massive change in the in the weather that caused another fire or like the fire the august complex fire to really drop into the valley that's a really scary scenario of people trying to get out on dirt roads and there's only so much traffic that those can um maintain so that and the smoke um getting worse i decided to evacuate that day um and it turned out later on that the 162 was open and had possibly been closed before. And um, so I took the dirt road out of the valley and I was trying to get to Santa Rosa. So I took Branscombe to the one and then the one to the 258 or the 128 through, um, through Boonville and then down to Cloverdale and then down to Santa Rosa. Um, and yeah. so like I immediately started missing Covalo. I love it up here. And so I was keeping an ear out for the change of um, the evacuation warning because I was in a warning zone and then um, a change in the darkness in the sky. Is that the, it was just so surreal and so eerie um, and the air was so still. And, um, so that, that was more psychologically alarming than, um, I guess physically is the smoke. It was clear on the ground. Did you, um, did you guys get the moment where the, the light filtering through was like a red, dark red kind of light? Yeah. Yeah. We got like the dark red maroon, like dark, dark red. And then for maybe like 20 minutes, it was pitch black, like no light at all. You could, you, I could see like to the South that there was some light happening towards like looking towards like Pillsbury. Um, but it, it was obvious that it was a big, like broad stroke of dark 
smoke layer um yeah that was just moving I, it was a dark for you guys also in Willits. yeah around it was one of our 24 offs um so I, I had gotten home and was trying to trying to rest before going back out again and um and the sky was so dark the sky turned red I, I remember being a little bit delirious and tired because sleep is not something that you necessarily get when you're on the fire line and um I was, I was pretty confused about it and one of the more confusing things was so it was maybe three o'clock when i noticed coyotes were were howling and i think that the livestock and the animals the wildlife were were confused also about what what time it is and what they're supposed to be doing and and i've noticed since fire season since the august complex fire really started that there's been um i don't know if this is you know if this is causation or just correlation but the the coyotes have been um a lot more active during the day later in the morning than they usually are they, they should be sleeping i i tell them loudly in the mornings when they're awake and they're uh investigating how to get into my electric fence i talk to them right. about how it's time to go to bed but they um they've been and that day and that day i remember noticing how strange it was to hear coyotes at three o'clock and um so yeah that 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 day that dark day um was a result of the smoke column from the august complex fire laying over covalo and 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 west and um and it it really was a blessing for the for all of brook trails and the oak fire because that that blocking out of the sun um made it so that the relative humility humidity that uh that usually burns off during the day the sun kind of you know the sun heats up our the earth and and all of the humidity kind of um, evaporates out and we get these low relative humidities that make fire behavior so much more dangerous um, or you know fast and the relative humidity wasn't able you know stayed high that whole day and the temperatures were low and fire behavior really really slowed down which gave the bulldozer operators a chance to get in front and and to do a lot more work putting in containment lines and the unfortunate thing about smoke so there were there were good things and bad things the bad thing is that it made it so that none of the aircraft could be flying so um so all, like i was talking about earlier how that fire turned into a an air show and how so much of the work was being done from the sky that all was grounded but the slowing of the fire was able to give the on the ground resources more time to get ahead make containment lines and secondary containment lines right and so while it was, you know, kind of disgusting for breathing um, and for existing in, it was, it was, I think, one of the large reasons why the Brook Trails or the Oak Fire didn't um, just totally explode and turn into a mega fire. So mm -hmm. that was an interesting day for sure. <laughs> it was such a surreal yeah. feeling being in that, in that light. And, um, and, you know, I was, I think we were talking about this last month when we were thinking about impact that the fire is having like i wonder how the plants are being impacted by that kind of light coming through and and just all you know not that day was an extreme example but so many days of the last month have been very smoky days and i wonder how that is impacting you know not just the wildlife like i talked about but the plant life and um i you know i just don't i don't know but i i, I wonder if people are having experiences in their gardens of noticing things are ripening slower or growing slower or differently and i definitely noticed that with the with the tomatoes here um it seemed it was funny with the eggplants it seemed like they were 
sort of into it. They, they were into the cooler weather. Um, and But then it got to a point where they really just weren't getting a lot of sunlight. And so that, I think, stunted their growth a little bit. Mm-hmm. The decrease of flowers. I, I hang out with the eggplants. I'm an avid eggplant person at this point. <laughs> so they like the cooler weather, but maybe not the lack of sunlight. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I listened to the eggplants and they they were into they're into the cooler weather. I think sometimes the heat and the light intensity in the sun can be a little too much for them up here because we're also we're at like 1200 feet hmm. in Kovala. And what what's the elevation for Willits? Mm, yeah, the summit there is I think around 1200 feet. Um and so the ranch and Willits are below that. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I know, uh, you know, farmers do all kinds of work to keep their peppers and tomatoes and eggplants from sunburning. And yeah. um, and so, yeah, that kind of spectrum light, I wonder if that was actually a benefit to some of those plants that ha- that have a hard time with a really, really direct sun. Right. Yeah, I, you know, I think that the, in some of the conversations I've been having with, with my the new agrarian collective and the farmers that I work with, um, it's like we can expect that this time of year will be smoky every year. It's likely, yeah. you know, and and um, and so thinking about what you know, working in that working in those conditions is is really not good for us, and um, and and difficult with with wearing masks and doing the work that you know to the level that you've been doing without feeling fatigued and sick, and so. Have you uh, noticed any? that for you and especially also being out with the fire yeah i it's interesting that when i'm actually working um on the fire i think maybe the adrenaline or something like that uh i don't notice those kinds of i don't notice it um and maybe it's happening and i'm just not noticing it or it's being overridden by some kind of hormone in my brain but when i'm (laughs) home when i'm home and i'm working outside um yeah, I definitely notice. I get I get a sort of a headache, and I get really tired really easily. And things that normally take me, you know, five minutes end up taking me ten minutes sometimes. And I'm um, one one of the things that I was sort of, you know, in the back of my mind the whole time I was working on the fires was that it's September. September is my season for fall shearing. I have sheep that that are fast wool growing breeds, so I shear twice a year, and I like to shear in September. So there's enough time for them to regrow their wool before the first frost, before it gets really cold. So shearing season was, my window was closing. Um, it's also my slaughter season for um, for meat. So my pigs that are ready and I had, I had butcher dates all set up that came and went and got passed over. Um, and so the whole time I'm kind of thinking, I'm falling behind, I'm falling behind. And when I, and after the after two weeks of working because we we got switched from the oak incident to the august incident so after after 14 days i started thinking well if this is going to keep going i want to i want to keep working with the fires but i need to be using my 24-hour off days to work on the farm and that's where i knew i was going to start stretching myself too thin and and it was going to be dangerous and so one of the days i um i had a plan to shear the sheep on my off day, which is a physically exhausting thing to do. And I'm already doing physically exhausting things with the fire and I get home and the, this is, this is, this is a little snapshot into what my ridiculous life with sheep looks like. 
So the, the sheep were grazing the backside of the ag pond. There's no road out there. It's beautiful. It's lovely. But there's no way to get there other than hiking. And because they're being moved, you know, daily or every other day, you know, um, they're with portable fences. It's only it's only a few hundred feet you have to walk to move the battery. But once you're on the far side of the lake, if you have to bring that stuff all the way back, it's a long hike with a, with a heavy battery and a bunch of fences and a water pump and water troughs. And so... Um, my plan had evolved to be ranching by canoe, and so we have a canoe at the lake, and I had this whole plan. I was going to get home. I was going to load the generator in the canoe with gas and my shearing machine and bags and, like, all everything I need for shearing, <laughs> remote shearing with no electricity. And, you know, the potential for capsizing the canoe and destroying a Honda generator, or you know, it was just, like, it was not going to be easy. <laughs> and I get home, and I, and I say to Lorraine, okay, I... I think I'm ready. Let's do it. <laughs> and she's so good to me. She she basically said, "We're not going to do. We're let's not do it." And even just the one suggestion of maybe we don't do it, and I was like, "Okay, great. We're pulling the plug. We're not going to do it. <laughs> That's a terrible idea." <laughs> and so eventually, I you know, eventually, I you know, on the 18th day, we were actually released, and I was able to go home and share the very next day with with um with a cool new tool that I bought while I was on the fire line. I, I called my, um, one of the, one of the distributors that I buy shearing equipment from and I bought this battery operated shearing machine. So now, yeah, yeah, this is a next level. This is a game changer for me. Now I can go in the field not have to be attached to an extension cord or a generator power and, um, shear wherever the sheep are. Um, anyway, all that to say it was smoky. And I'm shearing the sheep, and what usually takes me, you know, a few minutes was taking me a lot longer, and I recognized that the smoke was making it, so I needed to really slow down and be careful, and shearing, you're kind of inverted, too, your head is down, and you're, and so the blood is rushing, you know, it just, there were, I had to take significant breaks in between sheep, and, um, and it's pretty hard to shear with an N95 on, um, so... Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So it it definitely is uh, harder on me. I don't know. Have you experienced have, what what's it like for you farming out in the smoke? Yeah. I think at first I was much more in the boat of like I'm invincible. I'm like a tough farmer and I can like get through the smoke and I wasn't wearing a mask and I for the first week and I definitely was feeling it my throat and in my lungs a lot. It just felt like I had this heaviness in my chest, not necessarily on my chest. And um, yeah, I didn't have an air purifier at the time in my living space. And so um, I just, I did notice like the head rush thing. I would be like bent over uh, transplanting lettuce and then I would pop up and I get head rushes as it is, but these head rushes like definitely seemed a lot more like heavy, I guess. Or I was like, it felt like my body was taking a much larger toll um, just from that little bit of work with the added element of the smoke. Um, yeah. So that, and I also noticed like my voice was getting like a little bit more raspy and nasally as well. So I got myself together and I was wearing, I've been wearing a mask outside for the most part um, and kind of just playing it by ear. I heard somewhere along the line that 
if the visibility is down to one mile, that it's dangerous to be out. So you don't necessarily need a gauge or something. You can kind of just look out and see, oh, it looks really thick today. I'm going to wear a mask or, oh, it's thinner. I can see some blue sky above. So mm-hmm. kind of how I've been rolling with it. Because um, I, I don't like wearing a mask, but I, I will for my own safety and for the safety of other people. Um, well, that's good. That's good of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> as possible. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I'm I'm taking this EMT class right now and and just learning about the respiratory system and the and and how important oxygen is for our bodies and that yeah. if you're breathing air that has lower amount of oxygen in it, you know, we're like we're potentially all in some kind of state of hypoxia of having low oxygen in our blood and yeah. so it totally makes sense why headaches or, you know, head rushes and all of those things um would happen and so yeah, I mean it's it's great if you have indoor spaces that can be purified and and I I know, you know, a lot of people working on farms don't live in houses or, you know, in dwellings that are um that are that level of airtight, you know. Yeah. And yeah. so just thinking about how um how difficult it is for people marginalized people who are maybe living in places that aren't easy to easy to purify or or who work jobs where they can't stay inside. Um Yeah. 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 So the, the N95 mask seems like for me, at least I, I notice a difference when I'm wearing it and working that it, I, I'm able to kind of maintain more of my usual pace and my, and stamina. Um, so I'm, I'm adapting to it. I'm getting better at it. I, I still don't, I still haven't figured out how to shear with it on, but, um, but it's probably something that I'll, um, you know, every fall have to practice a little bit more how to shear with an N95 on. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, I hope that that's not the case that you know we can get together as a either a smaller community or as like larger um groups of people and entities and figure out a way to get back into those cultural burning practices that we we're talking about because it it makes so much sense and it it is just like duh <laughs> just take care of the land in the off season and then you don't have to have a massive fire and a massive response to the fire and it's like hitting the gas and the brakes really hard throughout the year rather than just right sustaining sustaining it you know yeah yeah controlled burns would be really great to be seeing more of and um i know in little lake valley there was there was an interesting control burn that was done along the highway seven miles seven maybe it was seven acres along the highway and and just like the visibility of that and <clears throat> awareness that w- that sort of brought, I think was really useful. So yeah, Brook Trails was, it was such an interesting um, experience being in that, in those fuels and recognizing how long those fuels had been there, how much of it was just dead and, and dry. And, um, and so not only how well it burned, but how difficult it was to fight fire in it because it just was, you know, it's like a tangle of, of, dead wood it's hard to get through and so after a few gosh i don't know i think it was friday of that week um after the fire you know it was recognized that that fire was was growing and it was becoming an action an incident and so they brought in this incident management team this is what they do for bigger fires so they started trying to host that um the incident management at the rodeo grounds in Willits. Um, it quickly outgrew the rodeo grounds. And so the incident management team that was managing the west zone of the August complex um, 
was stationed at the Ukiah Fairgrounds, and the Oak, the Oak Fire, and the West Zone of the August Complex sort of merged into one incident management um, base camp, basically at Fairgrounds. And so every morning we would report there. Seven a.m. There would be a briefing. We would get our assignment. Um, they would feed us a hot breakfast, and we would pick up sack lunches for the the for lunch and for dinner and um and head out and it took us two hours every morning to drive to where we were stationed which was um at first it was called division foxtrot foxtrot and then switched to division november and um was basically in the um north of pillsbury and south of covalo so the um yeah more on the southern end of the of the west zone but um we were stationed in the eden valley area and and it was my it's my first campaign fire really my first experience with a big campaign fire like that and just witnessing the kind of coordination that went into thousand it was over a thousand firefighters or resources people who were running dozers or fought literally on engines firefighting um yeah. just so many people were being coordinated um by this impressive team cal fire had put together and I was pretty blown away by that level of coordination. Um, so we noticed there were, you know, a lot of CAL FIRE resources and, and a few local government resources too. There were two Mendocino strike teams. So that's mm -hmm. 10, 10 engines from Mendocino. Um, and the, the, we started noticing people from all around the country. So there were Texas strike teams, and then there were New Mexico, and then all of a sudden we saw New Jersey was there. And they, they had loaded their engines onto Russian cargo planes and flown them into SFO and driven up here. So, was, wow, yeah, that was pretty wild, pretty amazing to see. And um, so, yeah, just over a thousand people buzzing around um, with this, you know, really structured um, command kind of plan, and and. You know, the nice thing for me as a firefighter, like literally the lowest on the totem pole of that whole <laughs> control, you know, is that um, it, it's there's something really satisfying about showing up to do a job. You're told exactly what to do. And all I have to do is show up and like my my world is very small. I just I focus on maybe a mile of this fire line with these other engines. I know exactly how many feet I'm supposed to be looking and working. I know exactly the length of my hose and I know my capability physically and yeah. I can complete a task and then it's over that day and we go <sighs> home and we start again the next day. And it's so different from, from running my own, my own ranch yeah. operation where I'm thinking like multi-year strategies and I'm, <laughs> it's so complicated and I have to make every decision. And, <laughs> and so it's like it's a vacation a little bit from my regular life of having to make so many decisions all the time and never being sure if i'm doing a good job is this working i can't tell and on, on the fire it's just really clear it, like this was the mission are we completing the mission or are we not completing the mission yes no <laughs> it's awesome <laughs> and so that's it's a really satisfying thing actually and and um and we're fortunate to have so many amazing leaders so the chief of the rigid ranch fire i would just i trust him with my life literally whenever we go out on these fires i do and um anything that he said to do or not to do i would i would trust and believe um 
and and you know I think he worked 23 seasons with Cal Fire, so he's got a lot of experience seeing fires. And I heard him say on this August Complex fire, there was one day where he said he saw fire behavior that day that he's only seen maybe a small handful of times in his entire fire career. So what what did that look like? Oh my gosh, it was yeah that that was that was a big day. It was um it was another situation where I was just in awe of the firefighters who were doing the work, but also just like in awe of the power of fire. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, usually when we're fighting fires, maybe, maybe the, you know, if it's a grass fire, maybe it's like, you know, three foot flame lengths, or if it's a brush fire, maybe 15 foot flame lengths. And that's pretty amazing and big. And if it's a forest fire, it, the, the flame lengths are just, you know, they can be a hundred, 200 feet. It, it was, it was wild. I saw, we saw a fire whirl, which is like a fire tornado growing on this ridge um, as we watched the fire come over this ridge. And 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 so that day, um, well, just sort of big picture on a fire that size, like I talked about with the Oak Fire, it, you know, it was like, there's no way that putting a bunch of little ants, you know, little firefighters, little tiny ants with a hose up against a yeah. forest fire is going to do anything. <laughs> Um, except put us in danger, and that's literally the very last thing that they would ever do is anything that would be dangerous for a firefighter. So, um, so most of that fire was it's either from the air, like I said, or indirect firefighting, which is when a bulldozer will will cut a, a line, so um, a wide swath where it's cut all the way down to bare soil, bare earth, um, and then they'll fire, they'll light a fire that'll consume all the fuels between that line and where the fire currently is. So consuming all those fuels will make it so the fire can't advance any further. That's how you get a good containment line. And that was mostly what was happening in our division was firing operations. Firing operations are like, I think in my limited experience of being a firefighter, like the coolest thing to witness ever. Um, Yeah. Because... I mean, it's probably not, it's not a little known fact that firefighters are all mostly like really into fire. Um, Obviously we want to put it out if it needs to be put out, but um, getting to watch it is just like this kind of spiritual experience. It's really cool. And so that day we were, we were on the far side of this reservoir and, uh, and the bulldozers had been cutting a line. And so they sent out these hand crews and the hand crews, um, the hand crews are like these well-oiled machines. They're amazing. They can cut. If there's no, if there's a place where a bulldozer can't go, these people, I think it's 17 people in a hand crew. Uh, don't quote me on that, but they, you know, with, uh, with a whole gang of chainsaws and axes and tools and all these things, they can clear a wide line and they'll just, they'll just take off through a forest and, and cut a line right through a forest and clear it completely down to the ground and so they're amazing they're really cool um and and just like yeah very impressive so here's the the multiple hand crews on the ground and they're being instructed to light to light off this fire um to consume fuel before the fire gets to that spot and we're watching as the fire is coming over the ridge and as they're lighting the fire in between so they're they're lighting this forest on fire we're watching the fire come over the ridge the smoke cloud starts turning and it's like this, it's just this massive swirling dark cloud, like spiraling up from where the fire is coming from. 
and this fire tornado from the corner. It was just, it was wild. And um, so that day, getting to watch that, the beginning of that fire operation, and we didn't get to finish watching it because we were sent to the, to one of the roads along and to start our own firing operation on this other road. So we got, we got paired with um, some really amazing professional firefighters who were let, let, you know, leading our firing operation. And we followed behind with our engine and helped to light anything that didn't get lit the first go around. And that was, um, I, th I would say that was probably like the epitome of like the, 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 you know, like the most amazing day that I spent on the fire line was the, was the firing operation day. And wow. that's what people picture when they're like, Oh, you're a firefighter. And you're probably like, uh, yeah. And it's not like that for 99% of the rest of the time. So, so I try and just hold on to that one day, like, wow, that was a great day. But <laughs> mostly, <laughs> mostly what we're doing is a firing operation happened. And our goal is to put out all of the smoke that's anywhere within a hundred feet of that line so that it doesn't pick back up again and toss an ember onto the other side of the road. And now all of a sudden the fire's on the wrong side of the road and it's taking off. So mostly we're doing what they call mop up, which is driving, patrolling up and down these roads that had a fire come through and putting mm -hmm. smoke out, literally like smashing stumps apart and dumping a ton of water into them to put the smoke <laughs> out so that the stump doesn't light on fire again and send an ember the wrong way. Right. And that's mostly what we did the rest of the time. There was one day we got to do a, another hose lay when there was a, when that did happen, an ember, or, you know, the fire started on the wrong side of the road. Now a fire is building and it was getting pretty well established on the wrong side of the road. So we got to do a progressive hose lay to wrap around it and stop that fire from continuing on the wrong side. That was another good day. Yeah. I feel like I have this image in my head of like firefighters, like, going like head to head with the fire itself and it it's totally like you're saying it's like the last thing that your your um superiors would tell you to do it's dangerous and i think the the mop-up sounds like the more long-term like crucial work to be doing on the fire yeah it's really cool and those dozer operators, I just, I have a new found amazing deep respect for bulldozers and just how effective they can be at, at making, you know, when, when you're working in country where there isn't roads, where there aren't roads, I mean, cutting through that are a natural fire break, you have to make your own fire break. And right. that's what the bulldozers are so good at, or the hand crews. Mm -hmm. And um, one big difference this year from other years is that the hand crews are typically con crews and that that has dropped significantly with COVID. And so so CAL FIRE has put together some hand crews of CAL FIRE firefighters instead of having the inmate crews um, that we usually have. And so that's something... Is there, is there a lot of discussion around that on uh, within the crews of like the like the difference in impact that it has to have less people and subsequently inmates working on the fire? Yeah, yeah, there there is discussion about it, and um, and uh, yeah, I think I this is the sound of my pager going off. <laughs> okay, hold on one second. Okay, that's not for me. Um, <laughs> everything's fine. Everything's fine. Uh, um, yeah, there's there's definitely discussion of it, and and um, 
mostly discussion about like is this going to be the reality moving forward because if so they're they're critical that the those crews are such a huge part of firefighting in california and we've really come to rely on them and they're cheap that's i think that's the reality of it they're they're a cheap resource and building a hand crew out of paid cal fire firefighters is like astronomically more expensive in, in my understanding so so that i you know just hearing whispers but you know from or just you know hearing side conversations and things but um it'll be interesting to see if that if the if the inmate crews next year are back on the fire line or if um or if that is going to be something of the past or i'm not i'm really not sure i know that legislation was passed recently that makes it so that the inmate crews or inmate firefighters after they get out are able to be hired in the field which was not the case before oh that's great so that's a really big thing that just recently happened this month um and you know i think that it's a complicated topic really i think that you know a lot of the a lot of the inmates who are doing it really like to do it and really want to be doing it. And especially if there's a career potentially afterwards. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of really baffling that it wouldn't be a career after they had been doing it at like such a cheap wage, like such a low wage. And as soon as they're not in jail, it's like, Oh, you can't do this job. Yeah. <laughs> it's really a twisted system yeah 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 and, and just the the impact that having a record like that will have on on your higher ability is pretty it it's it's disturbing but there are um there are some big moves in california to make it so that inmate firefighters have a future in firefighting afterwards which i think is great and um yeah i don't know we'll see what we'll see what happens after covid and we'll see what happens you know as fires continue in california the way that they are um and like you said, it would be great if we could see a coordinated effort for for um, fuel reduction, you know, using indigenous practices, using practices that have worked for California for a long time before before we yeah, stopped year, them. Year-round attention. Yeah, with year-round attention, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's something that I think, you know, our listeners who are out there thinking about how we can not only be thinking about fire season during fire season and you know how we can be preemptive with this kind of work um yeah i encourage you to start thinking about how um how the area around you could be impacted in a different way by fire you know if if brook trails had taken part in in either fuel 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 clearing you know they're they're doing that with livestock now with goats and sheep and clearing fuel or burning fuel um it's definitely a lot harder to get the um to get all of the legal certification to do that but um people are able to do it and so that's something that would be really cool to see more of in mendocino county and i think that these two fires this season have been have so hugely impacted uh, yeah. residents here that we're gonna have to start thinking about it it's clearly it's clearly the state of things at this moment and um yeah, preemptive preemptive action. I think is where it's at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Covlo, like I said at the beginning, you know, there are still evacuation orders throughout Covlo, and and you're there right now. Um, 
So, you know, what's what's it like for you right now? What are what are you what are you feeling and how what's the kind of general Kovalo uh, experience right now? Well, I mean, I, anyone who's really keeping up on the fire can see that the on the map it's in a massive horseshoe basically from like Kedden Palm all the way down to Lake County, like Pillsbury and um it it's a, just a massive horseshoe right around Round Valley, and I've seen on the map that there's a lot of containment. I don't know the percentage for the West Zone. Um, Sixty percent contained of, on the West Zone right now. Oh, great! Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so it feels really stable to the west of us. Um, to the north, it seems a lot less unstable, and to the south, it seems a little bit more. But um, just the other night, um, I was driving into the valley, and it was getting dark. And this, I learned later on that this was a um, backburn that they were doing um, on the south side of Hammerhorn Mountain, which is a mountain to the northeast, north-northeast of the valley, and it's like one of the major mountains that you see as you're driving in. So as I was driving in, I saw these massive flames from like at least 10 miles as the bird flies um, across the valley. And it was really, really daunting to see as I was driving in. It was visible from practically everywhere in the valley. And wow. so that, that's been like the most recent um, uh, progression that I've noticed in the fire. Um, it looks like potential for rain next next week. I don't know if that's yeah. potential in Covalo too. Yeah, that's what I heard at the on the report yesterday morning that there's a chance of rain at the end of this week and probably early next week too. Because mm -hmm. usually like four, three or four days, it's like maybe it'll rain. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the cooling yeah. temperatures, I think, will help too. It's at least for us here in Willits, it's supposed to be down in the seventies and and dropping, yeah. and it looks like free our first frost is potentially going to come in in a few weeks. So. Um, so it's, yeah, it's something to think about. I was just thinking about cover cropping today and, um, yeah. oh my gosh. <laughs> All right. Well, we have just a minute left to go on this show and I'm going to listen in on this pager again. Um, yeah. well, we'll just let listeners know if there's, oh yeah, everything's fine again. Okay. Um, so I'm going to sign us off with the song here and, um, and, we um, will be in touch with our county next month. Thank you so much, Darcy. Yeah, thank you, Ruthie. We'll talk to you all soon. Brother, every time I call you home, you are dancing. Sister, please don't put your children on in this. There's no heaven